Welcome to the Grace of Eugene podcast. We exist to help every person in our sphere of influence to encounter Christ, experience biblical community, and extend God's kingdom. You can learn more about us at gracecityeugene.com. Here's the podcast. Today, uh, we get to start a new sermon series, and uh, I'm pretty excited about it. This is one that's been stirring since last November. Um, Last November, we had an elders retreat, and one of the questions that the elders asked me is, Chris, as you counsel people and as, you know, we we work through ministry and mission and all of these things, what what do you think are the main things that get in the way of people walking out their God-given purpose and mission in life? Like, what are the main obstructions, if you will, of people walking in that? And so we had this conversation for the better part of a, of a day off and on about it. And uh, we decided through some prayer and conversation that this needed to be a, a sermon series. And we need to talk about these things, put some biblical perspective to them, and then have discussions based on these topics in our life groups. So if you're not in a life group, this would be a great chance to jump in because you're already here. You got half of the work done. You're going to hear the message over the next two and a half hours, and you'll be ready for, for life group. And uh, that's the easy part this week. So um, if you're newer here, I was joking about the two and a half hours. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about this because, you know, there's some sermon series where it's like, okay, we know that this is important and There's some where God really points out maybe a book of the Bible to dive through, and you don't, it's hard to tell when you get into it what is going to be impactful about it ahead of time. But as you're diving in and you go week to week, you're like, whew, that was good. We needed that. That was very impactful for our community. Um, And I'm excited about this because I believe that um, a fair number of us are dealing with these obstructions or inhibitors of our faith in our life right now. This is not some theoretical thing that we are all unfamiliar with, I think in one way or another, everybody in this room is going to be able to relate each week as we dive into these things. And so um, I'm excited. That excites me. Now there's also a little pressure with that, if I'm honest. It's like, oh, man, everybody needs this one, including myself. So I spend the whole week ahead of time just preaching to myself, trying to get my heart right so I can come and faithfully give this word. And uh, that's where we're at today. It was, it was a week. Um, we're preaching on something called spiritual warfare today. And uh, when you preach on stuff, uh, you often get opportunities to practice what you're about to preach ahead of the preach. Um, and plenty of things try to be obstructions in route to delivering a timely word from the Lord and from his scriptures. So um, I want to warn you today, this is one of those good ones to take notes on. If you're not normally a note taker, I won't be offended if you take notes on your phone. Um, Just try not to fall asleep. But this is a good one where we're going to be going through a lot of things that it would be worth writing a note down, coming back to it, listen to this message afterwards, because for the sake of time, I'm going to be having to crank a few times just plowing through things, and you might be like, wait, what about what you just said? We need to talk more about that, and I'll just say, go listen to the recording. So that is where we are at today. So I said we're preaching about spiritual warfare, and the title of this message is The Unseen. 
Because before we get into all the other obstructions or inhibitors of our faith, we need to recognize the grand picture, the the larger picture, the, the cosmic battle that we are engaged in when we step into the kingdom of God. We can't just come in and say, oh, there's all these physical things and all of these relational things and all of these circumstances that get in our way of following God's purpose and mission for our life without first recognizing the umbrella that is spiritual warfare, the spiritual battle that's happening, the reality that this is a much bigger picture than what you and I are just engaged in, in like a very individual or even collective level as humans. There is something bigger at play here. There is a battle for souls, for dominion, and for establishment of the kingdom here on earth. And we fall into that. We are a part of that. And so this umbrella that we're talking about today of spiritual warfare, then in the following weeks, can manifest itself in some of these other things. But instead of every week saying, oh, and there's also a spiritual element to this, we're just going to paint that picture today, and it will cover and overarch the rest of this series. So on this topic, scriptures tell us that there is friction that we will feel in life. And this friction that we feel as we engage in situations and relationships and circumstances is not just a natural thing, but there is also a supernatural thing about it. The friction in which we experience is not just natural. There's something supernatural about it, around it, beside it, underneath it, if you will. There's there's this envelope of the spiritual that encompasses the friction that we experience. Now, what does that mean? And what does it mean when we say that the Holy Spirit enables us and empowers us to engage in whatever conflict that might be, whatever friction that might be? Um, In order to frame this for today, spoiler alert, we're going to look at the Bible. We're going to look at two different passages of Scripture. One is from Luke chapter 4, and one is from Ephesians chapter 6. So I'm going to read these both off, and then I believe that God is going to help us navigate putting those into the context of our experience of the knowledge that we need to have to arm ourselves to engage in this battle and to fight back against the obstructions and inhibitors of our faith that we see in our lives. Amen? So, you can read along with me or on the screens, but I'm going to start out in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. Now, this is, just for context, this is right after Jesus had been baptized by John the baptizer. The Holy Spirit had descended on him like a dove, and the Father spoke from heaven, saying, this is my son, I love him, listen to him, with him I am well pleased, and he gives this huge divine endorsement, okay? This happens, and then we enter into chapter 4. It says, and Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. For 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Even Jesus gets hungry during the fast. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him, To you I will give all the authority And their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. 
And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went throughout all the surrounding country. It's Luke chapter 4. Now Ephesians 6 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this time. I thank you that you're going to speak through this. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, open our spiritual eyes to what we are engaged in. And we pray that your spirit would fill us, would fill this place and empower and equip us to engage in this good fight that you have set before us. So we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. That was a lot. Not as much as last week. I cut it down by half, so you're welcome. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no 46 verses like last week. So often in my home, um, this spiritual warfare thing is something like we deal with. It's, it's a real thing. And whether my kids recognize it or not yet, it's something that even they have to deal with. Something that I've seen over time and is the more that maybe I'm built up and protected and people are praying for their pastor and his wife. My kids may not have the eyes to see or have the knowledge to identify what's going on, and so I also have to cover them and educate them in how to deal with this as we take ground in the name of Jesus in this city that that is going to come with warfare. And when they would come under attack when we first moved down here, I, I would often pray, like, God, just keep them safe. Keep them safe. <laughs> And then I came to the realization as time went on and changed the way that I prayed for him. And now I pray that they would be a threat for the kingdom of God and they would learn how to fight back. Not, God, keep them safe. Keep them safe. But, Lord, would you help my daughters to be a threat for the kingdom of God? And would you and me teach them how to fight back? Does that make sense? That is now my prayer. 
And I would pray that in the name of Jesus over them. And I would pray that they would learn how to engage in the battle that surrounds them. And this morning, that is my prayer for you. Not that just, oh, God, keep them safe. Bless Elisa, keep her safe. But God, would you make Elisa a threat for the kingdom of God? And would you teach her, would you empower her by your spirit how to fight back? You know, too often we approach this Christian life as trying to seek some safe haven. And there are parts of that that are true. You don't want to like be ignorant about things and put yourself in precarious situations without plans and protection and wisdom from God. But the scriptures say that we will be under the shadow of God's wings and we will find rest if we are weary. But that does not mean that the Christian life is safe because if it says, when you are weary, I'll give you rest, that means something is meant to make you weary. That means you're going to need rest as you go along this way of following Jesus. You see, the ultimate goal, if you will, or ultimate point of the church is not just to become some subdivision of safety. We're not like, oh, we're off 25, 33, I think that's the address, Crescent, right? Go over there. It's a great subdivision of safety. Like if you just, if things have been hard, just hop on in. There won't be any attacks, none of that anymore. We are meant as the church to be a triage hospital that gets you fit, gets you prepared to go forward for Jesus. That is the goal. And this is an active partnership with God in establishing his kingdom here as it is in heaven. And we desire to have faith and courage to take part in this partnership. Amen. We don't desire just to go fortify the walls and keep out everything that's bad. We desire to get fit, get made well, get prepared and equipped to go out and do his work. And the scriptures say that when we do this, when we live with this paradigm, when we take on this mission and we say, yes, this is for me and I want to live that life, that it will come with spiritual warfare. It will come with spiritual warfare, that there will be war, that there will be a battle, that there will be friction that comes against us. A head, it'll feel like a headwind that's blowing against you sometimes. Like, man, why does it feel like every step is only a quarter of like what my stride usually is because there's just friction or something coming against you? And when you experience that, it's not to be mistaken as something that's only natural. It's not like, man, I must be really cramping up. My muscle elasticity must have really decreased. Like, no, there's something else happening. There's something, it's not just a bad dream. There's something spiritual behind the scenes that we cannot always see with our eyes. There's something bigger happening. And this morning, I want you to see that spiritual warfare is more real than you think. It's more important than you see and the victory is more assured than you know. That's what I want us to see this morning. So let's look at the first one. It's more real than you think. Now, typically when we come to church and we talk about this topic of spiritual warfare, there's divergence in the crowd that happens immediately, right? Like, things pop into your head and, you know, all of a sudden you're thinking that some weird movie where a girl's head turns around or whatever else pops into your head about spiritual warfare. Because there are those that think it's just silly. And then there's those that think there's literally a devil behind every bush and around every corner. There tends to be like two camps and like, ah, that stuff doesn't happen. That's just in the Bible. It was metaphorical. And then there's those that are on the other side. For example, I like examples. A few months back, we were installing some things in the back in that track above the lights. 
of this room that, where everything kind of shines on the stage and there's a TV and all that. And while running some cables up there, we had someone on a ladder that, we'll just say, got tickled by some electrical current as they were up there. Um, in other words, they got shocked <laughs> on a ladder. Now, the physical reality, as we just figured out what was going on, is that there were some staples and nails from previous jobs that were done up there that went through some wires and created some, some challenges. It created a bit of a precarious situation. Now, but if you're in one of those other churches, or if maybe you're one of those other camps where there's a devil behind everything, you're like, leave, devil of electrocution, right? You're like, that's just, that's what's going on there. Now, some of you might be laughing because um, you've, you've been to that church, and others of you might be laughing because you didn't know that church existed. And that's okay. We love them both. We lo- like, that, the, that's the whole point of this, is that often there is this gap that is the tension of these things that is actually where we want to exist, where we actually believe is the healthy place to reside on this topic. The reality is we live in a world where there is absolutely a physical reality. God made it, but there is also a spiritual reality behind it. So we don't want to fall into the ditch of thinking there's only a spiritual reality, and we overdo everything about angels and demons and attributing them to every single thing that happens in ways that the scriptures don't actually talk about them. We don't want to do that. Here's a tip on that note. You should be approximately as interested in topics of scripture and theology as scripture is in those topics. Let me say that again. You should be approximately as interested in topics and theology as the scripture is in those topics. The scripture does have some stuff to say about angels and demons, but not a ton. There's not entire books written about it. It's not the main topic of the Bible by any means. And the scripture has a lot to say about spiritual warfare, but not more than, say, the mission of God or what it means to be holy or how to make disciples. So we should care about those things about as appropriately as the Bible does. Um, We should not specialize in our walk of following Jesus more so in something that the Bible holds as maybe this isn't as big of a focus, right? Like, we need to put things in their proper place. So should we care about them? Absolutely. We should only care about them, or we should care about them, just not at the expense of others, of the other things that the Bible teaches about. But the Apostle Paul, as he writes this, wants us to see not that there is a devil behind every bush. For instance, if you're addicted to nicotine, it might be the devil of nicotine or spirit of addiction, or it might just be you should stop. You like it too much and you need to get over it. There might be something chemical that's happening in your body. I don't know. God does, but you can't just say everything is one or the other. And then we don't want to overcorrect and go into the ditch on the other side of the road, right? That unfortunately many Christians default towards. And the idea that there isn't really any sort of spiritual reality behind anything natural at all. Too many believers read scriptures like Jesus casting out devils or Satan coming into God's presence in the book of Job or this conversation that Jesus has with the devil in chapter 4 that we read and they think, okay, maybe that's metaphorical or they just don't want to think about it very much because it makes them uncomfortable, right? Like, eh, I'd rather not think about that too much, pastor. We don't want to do that. That would be ignorant. 
if we do not allow ourselves to think more deeply, logically, and synthesize that information into the overall narrative of what God is doing in the Bible and here on earth, that would be ignorant. It's not good to go into battle without good reconnaissance. If we just ignore what's happening, and there's some nuggets of things that might help us in the battle, but we're like, ah, that's uncomfortable, so we don't want to hear about it, we're still engaged in the battle, and we don't have good intel. That is not wise, is it? For instance, if we were in some sort of military group and we were told to go take that hill, it would be important that we know where the hill is and what stands between us and the hill, right? Like, go take what hill? Okay, that one over there. Great. I can see the terrain. Now, what is between me and that hill that I've been commanded to take? We need that intel. We need that information. And similarly, in Scripture, it tells us that if you are a Christian, you belong to Jesus, and you are a people who are contending in this world for God and others. You are engaged in a battle for the soul and well-being eternally of yourself, your family, and others. So you aren't just saved, you're brought into a new kingdom, a new kingdom serving a new king, namely God. Because of what Jesus has done, and now empowered by his spirit, he has called you to do something, to engage in a purpose, in matters greater than what you previously had. And that will bring warfare, battle, friction, whatever word you want to put to it. So we don't want to overthink it. We don't want to overthink it. And we don't want to find a devil behind every bush and looking around every corner, all scared every time the light turns off, right? But we do want to understand that around some bushes and corners, there are devils. It's both and. Some things are physical, some things are spiritual. Some things are a combination. We have to be okay with that and not being able to predestine everything in its attributions of whether it's physical or spiritual. That's just the reality we live in. Spiritual warfare is far more important than you see. So we don't want to be ignorant, the scriptures say to be wise to the schemes of our enemy. And for some of you, it just needs to sink in here this morning. that The simple fact is you have a spiritual enemy. And if we don't recognize that, then we can't categorize what's actually happening to us. We don't know how to fight these things. This spiritual enemy, namely Satan, the devil, he hates you. He wishes to steal, kill, and destroy from you and all of God's people. And there is a spiritual reality behind what you have experienced in this natural life. There is both. There is a spiritual reality behind, us, behind it. It's more real than you think, and it's more important than you see. So if it's more important than we see, how do we deal with it? I was hoping you'd ask that. There's a lot written about spiritual warfare um, because people find it exciting, Right There's a lot of books, and people get very sensational about it. And um, part of the problem with that is if you search on Amazon for books about spiritual warfare, a ton of them would be complete nonsense because they don't talk about how Jesus dealt with spiritual warfare, which, just so you know, if you're a Christian, like the whole point is seeing how Jesus lived his life and emulating that, reflecting that, modeling after that. And so if a book is just being all sensational about the spiritual battle, but not teaching you and telling you how Jesus dealt with it, and then like empowering you to go deal with it in the same way, probably not worth the read. So we need to look at Jesus for answers and how to deal with this reality that we find ourselves in. 
So what we're going to do this morning, since it is more important than we think and more real than we see, we're going to take a look at how Jesus engages it. And I want to draw some parallels between how we saw Jesus deal with spiritual warfare in Luke chapter 4 and how we see Paul instruct the church in the book of Ephesus in how to wage spiritual warfare. So first thing is this, and I already read this, but I'm going to read it again to frame this. Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In order for you to believe this, you have to believe the gospel. Like, spiritual warfare isn't really a thing if you don't believe in the gospel. If you don't say, yes, I believe that God came and did this so that I could live the life that I was designed for, so that I could have a relationship made right with the creator of this world. If you don't believe all that, then you're not going to have spiritual warfare. Like, because you're not really a threat, you're not in the fight, right? You need to believe the gospel. And the gospel starts in Genesis when God made the world and then humans rebelled. And in our rebellion, it's not just as though we, we rebelled like some teenage kid who, you know, snuck out and did something you told them not to. I'm learning all about parenting that stage. But we took God's world and we gave power and influence over to God's enemies. It wasn't just like, no, dad, I don't want to do that. We handed over power and influence to the enemies of God. And we must understand that to know what spiritual warfare is all about. In our fall, our first parents' rebellion, they didn't just say, hey, God, I want to do what I want to do, even though they did that. They were given the world, right, to rule it under God and to make it after his image and his likeness and be in the family business of making stuff. That's what God created them for. But when they rebelled, and every time we do, we just reconfirm their choice to take the keys to this shiny new planet and hand them over to God's enemies. We just hand that over, that power and that influence to enemies of God. This is part of the reason that the devil could take Jesus up to the top of the temple and show him all the kingdoms of the world in one moment and say, look, I own all this, but I'll give it to you if you worship me. Like, do you ever think about stuff? How does the devil take Jesus and say, these are, I got all this, but if you worship me, I can give to you. Like, you should wrestle through that a little bit. That's a different sermon, but just, just have some fun with that. So we have to be wise. We have to have our eyes open because it's more real than we think, and it's more important than we see. And if it's important, then gosh, we need to know how to fight it. Amen? So Paul, in chapter 6 of Ephesians, talks about the armor of God. So let's talk about that. He says, first, put on the belt of truth. <clears throat> now, many people... Um, like to interact with church at their leisure. It's like, ah, church is just kind of this thing, and I'll be the decision maker about what is good and right and true and beautiful, and if church can help me with that, then great. I'll, I'll accept the church's influence in the areas that it really helps kind of <clears throat> build up my pre-existing ideas of what truth is. But if it contradicts what your feelings and your truth is, then you say to heck with the church, to heck with the Bible, and to heck with God. Like that's how people often engage with this. And that is a fundamentally flawed way to engage with life and certainly 
a flawed way to engage with any sort of spiritual battle. Because fastening on the belt of truth means that the truth doesn't come from you. It's something you're fastening on. It's not something inside of you. It's not something that is just you and you determine yourself and you're like, it doesn't say protect your truth inside of you. It says fasten on the belt of truth. Truth is not decided by you. Truth is not what you find to be true for you. That is not truth. Fasten the belt of truth that assures us that there is a fact and a very way to live the world and a way not to, to live in the world and a way not to. Now, that's not popular today, is it? It's a very controversial statement that we're saying there's an absolute truth handed down by God. There is a way to interact in the world and there is a way not to. Now, we're just getting started. We're already rough on feathers. So that means that we have to believe what God says about stuff, about life, about the things that we encounter, that we deal with. We have to believe what he says about it. The whole scene we see with Jesus and the devil cannot have happened without a fundamental concept that God defines truth. Remember when our first parents went against God's rule, when they sinned and they gave in to God's enemy, their fundamental problem was that they thought that they got to be autonomous. That they, and autonomous basically means self-law. They thought they could govern themselves, that they could determine what was true, what was good, what they should do themselves. They thought that they got to have a law unto themselves that what was true for me and now true for you and maybe what's true for me and my tribe or true for you and your tribe is what is good and right and we should fight for that and that's what we stand behind. And do you see how if everything that's true for you and what's true for you is okay and what's true for my people is great and true for your people is great, how that might come into some conflict. Maybe we see that around us today. If truth is independently determined by individuals and tribes and people groups, then how is that going to lead to any sort of unity or any sort of common direction or respect in life? It's not right, and we see it everywhere. We see how that leads to the world getting really dark really quick. So fastening on the truth just means, okay, there's a truth, and it's not mine. It's not within me. It's not something that I am the beholder of. It's something that I put on that is given to me from somebody else. And this is a foundational concept. So spiritual warfare is important. And it starts with understanding that there is a way things should be. Then Paul tells us to fasten on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, if we go back to Jesus' conversation with the devil, one of the ways to understand this conversation is in a very kind of religious or rule-following way. And when I say religious, I don't mean like believing in God or believing in something bigger than yourself. I mean rule-following, trying to live out this equation so that you can get something in return, like a transactional, relational type of thing. So he says, hey, Jesus, you're human. You want the good life, right? You want to rule. You want to have bread. You want all this stuff. And he, he hands it out, like, eat bread, have all the kingdoms, get healing or prosperity. All you have to do is my religious program for fulfillment. All you have to do is worship me. Just say yes to my things, and I'll give you all of this. Just eat some bread. Just worship me. Just jump through these hoops, and then you will get 
the good life. That's how the devil came at Jesus. That, my friends, is religion. That's one of the things religion holds out to you as a promise is, here, be a part of this program. Do these things, and oh, you're going to get so much out of it. You're going you're gonna to receive blessing and, and all of these things. Sign up fast, right? It's like an infomercial. So when we are commanded to take on the breastplate of righteousness, what does a breastplate do? It guards your heart. It guards the center of your being. What it means is that we're taking on a righteousness that is not our own. A breastplate of righteousness means that it's what's protecting from our spiritual enemy. And yes, it's also protecting us from the wrath of God. It's not our own righteousness that protects us from God's wrath. It's what Jesus did on the cross. It's righteousness that's given to us. And it protects us against the enemy as well. Now, many of us come in here this morning and we got kind of this scrap together, bubble gum and duct taped breastplate on, and we've kind of been like put together our own righteousness. And we come in, we're like, hey, God, can you shine this up a little bit? Can you make this look a little better? But what this is telling us is no, you need to rip that off. You don't get to dictate what righteousness looks like. It doesn't come from you. It's not put together or formed by you. It comes from someone other than you, namely from the God of the universe, and you need to put that on to protect you from what you deserve because of sin and from what the enemy is going to bring against you. You have to take that one off that you've been trying to scrap together in order to place on Jesus's righteousness a righteousness that's not your own. It's not based on your performance. It's not about your deeds. It's not your ability to show up early at church and stay late or do lots of Bible drills if that's a thing. It's from Jesus. It's from him. And if we look at how Jesus did battle, he was in no way insecure about his position with the Father. He was righteous, and the scriptures say that he himself is the righteousness of God. And so when we do battle, we do battle like him with the righteousness protecting who we are. We put that on because it's more real than we see. It's more important than we think. And if we think it's important, we need to wage war like he did with the belt of truth fastened around our waist and Jesus's righteousness, not ours, protecting the very center of who we are. And then there's the part of the armor that always confused me. It says we must have shoes of the gospel. Shoes of the gospel. Like, okay. Is that those like Jordans or what, what, are, what are the shoes of the gospel? What does that mean, right? Why would the Holy Spirit inspire Paul to write about the gospel as something that we should put on our feet? Simply stated, I believe because it's, the gospel, it's because the gospel compels us to go somewhere. There's something active that the gospel compels us to. The good news of Jesus Christ is something that must be taken out from inside these four walls, must be taken out from just in your mind and needs to leave your mouth. It needs to come out from your home and into a place where there's unreached people, and into an unreached dorm, into an unreached workplace, to unreached neighbors across the street, whatever it may be. It compels you to not just live this life for you, but to take this good news somewhere else to others. You have to put that gospel, that good news on, or it won't go anywhere. And to the degree with which you understand the gospel is the degree to which you are passionate about taking it elsewhere. If you're not passionate about the gospel, then you're not trying to take it to other places. You're just like, ah, I'm glad I got that for me. 
If you're passionate about the gospel, you can't stay in your seat. You can't stay in your house. You've got to strap on those shoes and take it somewhere else because you know that it saves, that it's got power because it's transformed your life. And who are you to just keep that to yourself? Your passion for the gospel will dictate your passion to take it elsewhere. Now, we, do we see this in the way Jesus did battle? Well, yes, he, he came on a mission, and it wasn't just to say to everyone like, hey, I'm here, and I'm holy, right? Like, he came to do spiritual battle in the wilderness for 40 days for you and for me. He's pioneering the good news. He's ushering in this kingdom of heaven. He is establishing this. Of course he's doing this. Now, let me pause for a second and say something. If you think, this is going to be really, this is going to go over great. If you think that you are just steeped in spiritual warfare, you're like, I just can't do anything. The spiritual warfare is just so all-consuming, and it's holding me down, and I just don't know what to do. If that's how you feel, but you're not taking the gospel anywhere, do you see where I'm going? Um, that's probably not spiritual warfare. It's probably not spiritual warfare. If you think you're just steeped in spiritual warfare, but you're not taking the gospel anywhere, you are probably not steeped in spiritual warfare. <clears throat> if you're just super self-concerned and wrapped in a big ball of like, woe is me and problems, and you've been praying, and you're like, God, I just, I don't know what is going on with all this stuff, I would urge you, look into what the gospel is, what it means for your life, and what you're supposed to be doing about it, and see how much you really trust it. Because if you are not fighting, then you're not going to get wounded in the battle, right? Like, if I'm, if I'm like, well, I really feel like I'm in the midst of this fight, but it's on another continent, you're, it's, it's probably not that war that's getting you. If you're not engaged in the battle, bringing forth the gospel, extending God's kingdom, seeing people redeemed and reconciled to their creator, then this spiritual warfare thing probably isn't what you're steeped in. Maybe it's a lack of trust of God's gospel and what he's got for you. Maybe it's a lack of faith and <clears throat> but it's probably not spiritual warfare. Sure, you might get hit by a stray bullet because, like, your family is engaged in sharing the gospel or something like that, but <clears throat> all too often, we can be sitting back, not engaged at all in the mission and the work of God, yet we want to attribute things, kind of like we said earlier, to everything's about a devil or the spiritual warfare. Like, nah, fam, if you're not, like, sharing the gospel, if you're not trusting God, it's probably not spiritual warfare. It's probably apathy and confusion and lack of faith. And God's got answers for those too. I'm not minimizing that those don't matter and those aren't real. It's just a different answer. That isn't I need like this breastplate of righteousness right now. This is maybe you need some other things. Maybe you need to really understand what the gospel means for you. You need to understand what Jesus' work on the cross did for you and that that would compel you with passion to go forth and engage in what God has as a mission for you. You see, our intimacy with God only increases with our mission, with our alongsidedness. I don't think that's a word, but it sounded right. With our alongsidedness with him. That's how intimacy increases. And when the heat gets turned up and the headwinds come because of our proximity to him and our engagement in his will and mission for our life, that is spiritual Warfare, And we need the shoes of the gospel so that we can take that forth. Then Paul tells us to take up the shield of faith. 
So say that you've received the gospel and you've been compelled to go share it by a grace that's not your own and you're engaging in this mission, right? This continuation of the work of Jesus Christ. And what's going to happen is you're going to get shot at. Like there's going to be, the devil's going to take some pop shots at you. He's going to take some cheap shots. It will happen. As soon as you open your mouth, you open your home, you open your wallet or your life or invite someone to church in the name of mission. As soon as you start to contribute to conversations in life group, this certainly will happen. The enemy will fling arrows at you. You will get shot at. Attacks will happen. A dart will zing by you, placing thoughts in your head that you're like, that's not truth. That's, I know that's not true. Like, where is that coming from? Things start to build up in your mind. Or maybe they're not just in your mind, but they're coming from other people, right? That one hurts even a little more. That's harder to discern sometimes. But the heat turns up and the headwinds start blowing and you start to experience some resistance. As soon as you take the gospel somewhere, you are going to get a dart back. There are going to be shots taken at you. You are going to find people think things about you that aren't true. You're going to find people say things about you, your family, your church, your pastor, your small group that aren't true. It will happen. So don't be surprised. That's super uplifting, Pastor Chris. Thank you. I tell you that because it's going to happen, but what do we do about it? That's what we're getting here. What do we do about it? That's what the shield of faith is all about. Because as soon as you take the gospel somewhere, as soon as you go on that mission trip, as soon as you do anything for Jesus, it starts to get hard. And if you don't have faith, if you're not trusting that God is good, then it's going to start to hurt. And you're going to be like, man, I'm doing this all for God, but he's not helping me. How can God let this happen to me if I'm doing these things for him? I thought that Christians were going to have lives that were blessed, and this doesn't feel very blessed right now if I'm honest with myself. And you're going to have your trust in God tested. It's going to be tested. And you've got to trust him that he will extinguish those darts. And if you don't trust him, they will hurt. And you might get to a place where you start to believe in the pain a little more than you believe in the promise. You might get to a place where those arrows are hitting and you're like, man, that really hurts. I really don't know if God actually cares about me because why would that hit me? Why would that hurt? Why would they say that? Why would this person believe that? Why won't that person accept my invitation to come to church? Why don't my parents support my beliefs? Why won't they support me engaging in community? Why won't they support me changing my major? Why are my kids straying? Why don't they seem to love Jesus like I do or like I want them to? Why does my boss not like me? Why, like, why have I lost my job? Whatever it is, you start to believe the pain more than the promise because you've lost the shield of faith and you're not trusting God to protect you and handle the circumstances and situations that surround you. And it's dangerous if we start believing the pain more than the promise. You see, Jesus hurt on those 40 days. I mean, I've never fasted for 40 days in a desert, but I can imagine it hurt a little bit. We know he was hungry, right? you got to have that shield of faith up, trusting God, because it will get hard. All too often we live for mountaintop moments where it's like we're just in the thick presence of God, and it's almost like we're face-to-face -face with God himself. We see his plans, his purposes. We're seeing things play out in our lives like, this is great. I wish I could just stay here forever, but family, I want to tell you we're not created for the mountaintops. We're created for the valleys. And the word says that God will take us through the valley of the shadow of death. He's not going to just leave us there, but the mountaintops are for refreshing, building up of faith so that we can get down, back down into the valleys where there's brokenness and darkness and we can shine light into those places. 
And if you're designed for that, if you're created for that, if your mission is there, then guess what? It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. If it was, if you're just a, I'm just going to live on the mountaintops for the rest of my life. If you're that person, it probably won't get too hard for you. But if you're going to live the life God's called you to live, you are going down into the valley and it's going to hurt. It's going to be hard. There's going to be arrows flung at you and you need to trust him to extinguish the fiery darts of the enemies. And sure enough, even the devil here started to accuse God's son. Like, isn't that kind of funny? Like when you look at this interaction between Jesus and the devil, that's all the word Satan actually means is literally the accuser. And he's basically saying, hey, God doesn't really love you. He's abandoned you. And he tries to get you and I to believe that every single day. He doesn't love you. You screwed up. You know it. He knows it. You probably shouldn't trust him anymore. You've fallen out of his grace. You've messed up one too many times. That thing you did two nights ago, that has now disqualified you. You better go find another means of trying to obtain hope and favor and security and significance in your life. That is what the voice of the accuser sounds like. He tries to do that every day, and that's when you need to raise your shield of faith and say, no, I trust God because God's got good. I do not trust you in those lies. Amen? And as you go forward in this life of pursuing Jesus, what is truth and what is lies, you're able to start detecting it in a shorter amount of time, praise God. I remember when I was first saved and I'm trying to follow Jesus and I'm a mess and I'm like, I don't know if that's a truth or a lie. And I had to go to 17 people just to try to get advice on what was what, right? And now, praise God, it takes me a little less time to start to discern through that and sift through that. And a big part of that is because I got this in me. I got this filtration system in me. Is that a truth or a lie? Is it in here? Is that what God says about me? Nope, it's a lie. I don't trust that. Send that back to hell where it came from because that's not from God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Trust in Jesus, shield of faith to extinguish the fiery darts of the enemy. Helmet of salvation. We're told to put on the helmet of salvation. Why is salvation a helmet? Because salvation has to do with who you are and whose you are. That, my friends, is assured and rock solid in the heavens, but sometimes it's very unstable between our ears, isn't it? Isn't that crazy that something can be so certain to God and so certain in the book of life, yet in our brains, with our limited understanding, it just seems so shaky and so fragile. Many of us have come to faith in Jesus, but what we're thinking about is not saved yet. Your thinking has not been baptized, if you will. You, you bring it to church. You bring it into God's family. You bring some ideas about God, some thoughts about God, some political philosophies, some thoughts about God's world, about money and sex and power and gender and all of these things that might need not be God's thoughts about those things. And you need the helmet of salvation to put on, not just to know that you're saved, but that your life and your thoughts and your feelings and your emotions are now fully owned and determined by Christ. That all of that, of who you are, your thoughts, feelings, emotions, all that, like, that is subject to God's leading, to the ways of Jesus. You don't just get to say, like, well, I'm bringing 
my rule and reign into the kingdom. And we can have some sort of arrangement, Jesus, so that we can just get along. It doesn't work that way because who you are and whose you are is determined when you are saved, when you give your life to Jesus, when he redeems you, when you repent and turn from your old self and you walk the way of your new self. And now that can be a process of that stuff sifting out, if you will. We call it sanctification, the process of becoming more like Jesus. We don't expect you to get dunked in the waters and you come up and you're like, oh, I never said or thought anything bad again. My feelings have been completely perfect. Like, no, that's trash. That's not how it's going to play out. But we need this helmet to protect our head and who and whose we are. We, we need that. We need a renewing of our minds so that we can be transformed. Romans 12 says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And renew means that, okay, you had a mind when you were born, but it was affected by sin. So that even your ability to know things and fully understand things is fallen. So that when you come to faith in Jesus, you not only have eternal life in him, and that's good and all, but he wants to give you, or he wants to begin to renew what goes on between your ears also. He wants to start to renew your thought life. He wants to renew how you think about stuff, how you think about God's world, the way you think about yourself. Praise God, he wants to renew that. Am I the only one that needs God to renew the way they think about themselves? So the helmet of salvation has to do with protecting your thoughts. Some of us allow our thoughts to be corrupted far too easily, and we make the enemies work simple. Protect what you watch. Protect what you listen to. Don't make the enemies work so dang easy. Don't make it so easy. And this is important for spiritual warfare. It's through these things that the enemy lies to you. Lies to you about yourself, lies to you about others. This helmet of salvation is God, renew my mind, change the way I think. Putting on the armor of God is saying, God, continue to protect my mind, my thoughts, the direction my eyes look, the things I read, the things I watch, the things I listen to, think about. Protect me from thinking, feeling, hearing, or believing the things in which I should not think, feel, hear, or believe. God, would you protect me from that so that I can respond in any given moment in the way that I ought to respond? Would he protect those things so that our responses can be reflections of how he would respond? Amen. That's the ultimate goal here. Would the way in which I respond reflect Jesus? And we need a renewal of our mind in order to live out that way. <clears throat> when the devil came and lied to Jesus, he lied to him about something he was feeling. Think about that. It was his hunger, right? And that's exactly how he will lie to you. He will use your feelings, and he will make lies, create lies, whisper lies about those things. This is spiritual warfare. It's not just your brain. It's not just chemicals. And partly, yes, all of that stuff, but there's something else going on behind the scenes and sometimes you are going to have to disagree with how you feel to be walking in the truth of what Jesus says about any given moment. Sometimes you have to disagree with how you feel. Now, all those weapons so far are defensive, right? That's the kind of stuff that protects us from the schemes of the enemy. And we need good defense because the battle is hard, but there is one offensive weapon 
And that weapon is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit. The Bible says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. That means that you take the Word of God, and in prayer you begin to pray God's words, God's thoughts, and you swing that sharp double-edged sword at your problems in prayer. You speak scripture over these things. You fight back from the lies and the schemes of the enemy with God's words. At your family's problems, in prayer. At your feelings, in prayer. At whatever diseases or whatever is plaguing you, whatever stands between you and God, wherever the gospel needs to go, you swing the sword of the spirit that is God's word at those things. You can be on offense with this weapon. Where does the gospel need to go? Bring God's word there. Pray it in the Spirit at all times. Be praying God's Word into those places. That is what an offensive weapon is. And notice Jesus. Now, if if Jesus does this, we we need to pay attention, right? If anyone could have just kind of freestyled their own hand-to-hand combat with the devil, it would have been Jesus, right? If he could have just done whatever he wanted, um, it would have been him. But he fought the spiritual enemy the way that we must, which is with God's Word. with God's word. We take these words. We speak them. We fight with them. It's not just, what can I come up with that's clever? How can I juke jive and find a way to get around whatever the devil's doing? We take these words of hope and we deploy them against words of depravity, against the brokenness that's all around us. It's what we do. So it's not this idea of like, self-talk, like positive self-talk, like, I'm a warrior. I'm, I'm this. I'm strong. I'm pretty. You see that in some churches these days, right? Like these positive personal affirmations, like, I can do anything. I'm a warrior. I'm strong. And all. like, I'm sorry. That's great. Like, there are very, there's a lot of handsome, beautiful people in this room. There's a lot of strong people and smart people in this room. Um, but that is not our weapon. Our weapon is God's word, what he says about us, what he says about who we are and whose we are. It's not all spiritual, but there is a spiritual element to it. And to pretend like there isn't is ignorance. Take the word of God, confess it, fight with it. But that means that you need to know the word in order to do that, right? There's the catch to this. You need to not just be able to read it, but you need to know what it actually means because the devil will recite scripture at you. He recited out of Psalm 91 to Jesus. That, like, that we need to understand. Like The devil uses this stuff against us too. So if we don't know what it means, then we're just like, oh, you're right, devil. That's, that's the scripture. He said, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus replied with, Scripture, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, which is written many times in the Bible. But if you don't know your Bible, you can't fight. If you don't know the Bible, you can't fight. Let me ask you this question. If what you currently know of the Bible, like right now, was all you had to fight with, how would you do? If what you currently know of the Bible right now is all you had to fight with, how would you do? 
Now, I'm not saying this to make anybody feel bad. I'm just trying to help us all come to terms with, myself included, that we need to take this seriously. I need to not only know it, but I need to know what it means. I need to know what it means because there's plenty of people who can proof text you a really bad idea. There's plenty of people who can take a verse and be like, that means you should do this. You're like, no, nah, that's, that's not what it means. Well, that's what the verse says, and I just choose to take it at its word. I'm like, no, you're taking that completely out of context. Can you please read the verse before it for me? And you'll see that, right? You need to know what it means. Lots of really bad ideas historically have had one or two poorly contextualized Bible verses attached to them. And they were set forth directly from the pits of hell onto our planet to look as though they were God's word. That's part of the reason why the armor that Paul is describing is not just for individual fighting. Paul is talking about armor as Roman soldiers do. Do you know how Roman soldiers fight? Anybody watch any good, good movies about that? Roman soldiers fight together as a family. And this whole armor of God and how it's designed and the idea that he's painting this picture here is not just like one soldier that's protected around all sides by this armor. It's meant to be linked to one another where one set of soldiers is down low on the knee, the other is up high, and they're working together to cover each other's sides and back and communicate where the attacks are coming from and to look out for one another. And if somebody gets injured, that they're able to pull them back, protect them, get them built back up and back to the front lines this is meant to be done in the context of a family you need to be in family in the church and really in the church so that when your shield's low someone else can come in front of you when you're tired and you can't hold it up anymore you got brothers and sisters to come help you fight to remind you what is true to swing that sword for you this is meant to be done in the context of fam family you can't do this on your own. <clears throat> we need each other to fight well. We need each other to fight well because this battle is more real than you think, more important than you see, and the victory is more assured than you know. Worship team, you can come back up. When Jesus achieved his victory, when he died on the cross, he said, it is finished. And that means our enemy is defeated. And now the battle that we fight, the one that we are in, is caught between the already of Christ's decisive victory on the cross and the not quite yet of his return. <clears throat> when evil is gone forever, so that when you fight, you know, even if you fall, even if you get your arm hurt, even if your spiritual legs are cut out from under you, even if you get the wind knocked out of you from time to time, you win because he won and he continues to win. Victory is assured. We are to be a people who have hope because we win in Jesus. He wins at the end, so we win, and we get to place our hope in that. Amen? Jesus says he will build the church and the gates of hell will not prevail over it. He doesn't say the gates of the church will stand like strong against the forces of darkness. You ever think about that? That's, that's for a reason. That's on, on purpose. He says the gates of hell will not prevail because he calls us to push them back. He calls us to be on offense, taking ground against the gates of hell, not just fortifying inside of the church walls, trying to hold our doors, keeping the evil out. He calls us to advance, not just 
to stay in and try to keep the doors from being blown open. That's what we want for our lives, for our city, for our community, for the gates of hell in our life in this city and on this campus to be pushed back in the name of Jesus, in our lives, in our job, in our community, on campus, in your small group, at your workplace, that hell would be pushed back in those areas, amen? But when we fight, we gotta fight wisely. We have to fight as a family. And we got to know that the victory is assured because of the work of Jesus. We trust that God is able to bring us into spiritual victories far greater than we could imagine. Because spiritual warfare is more real than you think. It's more important than you see. And the victory is more assured than you know. So family, I would pray that we will fight from a place of knowing and believing that. Amen.